Amen. Good morning to all of you. Thank you for leading us, worship team. I have to say this, I wasn't planning on saying this, but I have to say this now. Um, the first song that we sang this morning, uh, we clapped, and I told someone right afterwards that I think when uh, Lorena's singing and she's playing the piano, she can't clap at the same time as a worship leader. And so by default, the next person that you may look at, I typically will look at the pastor um, to see how he's clapping. I want to let you all know, please do not ever follow me with clapping and singing at the same time. I'm a one-track guy, ask my wife. That's it. So um, anyways, I love getting to worship with you. There's another thing I hadn't planned on saying, but I think it's worth saying at this point, since I'm already here, is you'll notice every once in a while, I'll kind of lean back and I'll look back. And I love being able to do that because I'm not just looking at all of your wonderful faces. I'm doing that because there's just something about getting to worship in community that's different than listening to K-Love in your car, you know? And it's just so much better to be able to go to church you don't have to buy a ticket to go to a worship concert. You get to be with your church family. And I just genuinely, genuinely enjoy that. So anyways, Philippians 2, 19 through 30 is where we're at today. Philippians 2, 19 uh, through 30. There's really been one driving main concept of what's been taking us through the last uh, three weeks in particular, and that comes out of verse 27 of chapter one. And that main statement is essentially this, that we are called to be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ as worthy citizens of a greater kingdom. And we do that by, and I'm just re rephrasing what we've said before, standing firm in the midst of a dark world. We do that by being unified, grounded in humility in our own body. And we also are worthy citizens by working out our salvation with fear and trembling and without grumbling or disputing so that we would be ready to meet Jesus. And so really, if the month of August was a lot of uh, Paul telling us about his own affairs, what's going on with him, and September has been a lot of uh, Paul saying, let me speak to your affairs, Church of Philippi, now he gives us a what's next. So let's look at this together, uh, verse 19 of chapter 2, the last part. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel, and I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. This is God's word. Uh, so far, Paul's really introduced us to some really big exhortations, big commands. Uh, we saw this in the first week. We saw how we're called to be servants of Jesus Christ. We'll find our identity, not in what we do, but being found in him. Uh, we, we've looked at passages that talk about living with love and knowledge and discernment, that we're supposed to have joy in the midst of circumstance. Gems like this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Another one. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And after all of that, we now have a travel itinerary. 
I noticed something that when I was reading this, the inspired word of God, and I didn't notice that it inspired all of you with a passion. I didn't hear any amens as I was, as I was reading. I have to be honest with you, when I've gone through Philippians before, when I've taught it before, this has seen something to be like a paraphrase around all the meat and potatoes that's in chapter one and two, and then in the other part of chapter three and four. As I was reading Today, uh, over the last uh, few days, I came across one pastor who said, no one's favorite Bible verse is in this passage. No one's favorite Bible verse is here. And so the question then becomes, what do we do? Like, don't be, don't pretend, don't, don't be too pious and pretend like you've never read your Bible on, uh, in the morning and it didn't just fill you up with a passion. Haven't we all had those days where we've read our Bible and went, well, I did that today, check that off and move along, right? We've all had that moment. So what do we do then when we come across a passage that doesn't necessarily fill us up with a passion? Let me give you just a few things I think that'll help us as we go in this morning. The first thing is that we ought to consider our posture toward Scripture. Consider your posture. Uh, I think I've said this. I think Anthony may have said this when he preached, but we referred to 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy 3.16 that says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, we know this, right? Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That includes this one, right? It includes this one as well. So when we approach our Bible, we don't just read it and go, I stand over it and read it. We submit underneath it. Uh, we submit underneath it. Do, do we just read the Bible or do we let the Bible read us? And so if God has spoken, it is worth listening to, and we should meditate and revisit and revisit and say, Lord, what have I missed that's here that you included this for a reason? I think the second thing is, is to remind ourselves that God is in everyday life, in the mundane things. I think there's a temptation when I've been up here and I've talked about great heroes of the faith, or Maybe you've gone onto YouTube and found your favorite uh, worship video and seen how epic it is and goes, and go, why does my church not do that, right? There's something about going the extraordinary, the spectacular, the flashy, and that seems like maybe that's what true Christianity is. And we, yet we see here, God cares about everything, even if it's the mundane things, even if it's all the way down to travel plans, and when you realize God cares about not just the big things but the small things, it changes how you pray because you realize he's in the mix of all of it. And then lastly, I think as it relates to this passage, we ought to see that some truths are best not only taught but also caught. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than your own. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. He's been saying that to us. That sounds familiar. It should sound familiar. But now Paul is saying, let me give you two examples of that in Brother Timothy and in Epaphroditus. And so examples sometimes help us to catch things that someone in a classroom could never teach us otherwise. And I think that's a good word for all of us that says this. Many people that you will encounter will not necessarily ever read their Bible, but they will read you, right? They may never read a Bible, but they're gonna read your life and they're gonna look at your example and what they believe about Christianity is, is based on how you act and how you act. And so that's what we wanna do this morning. We're gonna look at these two examples and say, what of their character can I catch from my own life? What about their character can I catch 
for my own life. And so we'll look at Timothy, and then we'll look at Epaphroditus. But before we do that, let me pray for us, and we'll get underway. Lord, this morning, we desire to be transformed by your word, by looking at the examples of men who have lived out the truths of Philippians that we've been looking at the last two months. Lord, we want to now see it in action so that we can then appropriate it for our own lives. But most importantly, we don't want to look like Timothy or Epaphroditus. We want to look like the one that they serve. We want to look like Jesus this morning. So would you help us with that when you show us how we are called to trust and obey as we've sang here this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So Timothy, let's look at the example of Timothy. Paul is in Rome, as we've said, and he is in prison. And he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. He adds on the last bit of uh, verse 24. He says, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I will see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I shortly myself am gonna come also. So you really you put it together. Uh, Paul is in prison and he's saying, look, I'm gonna send Timothy in a little while, but he is so precious to me. I want to see how this trial is going to turn out, and I need him here to be with me on my side. I don't have anybody else that's like him. Who is this guy that's so valuable to Paul? Who is Timothy? Well, we saw him on, on week one, Philippians 1.1. It says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. He's introduced right here at the beginning. You, you see that he's also introduced uh, in the book of Acts, if you look at Acts 16, 1 through 5, that's the passage right before the famous Macedonian call where Paul has this vision that he is supposed to cross over the sea and he is supposed to go to Macedonia and eventually plant the church in Philippi. And so this guy, Timothy, was raised in an uh, environment. Second Timothy talks about how he had his mother and he had his uh, grandmother who raised him up in a godly home. And along the way, Paul shows up and says, I want you to join me on my missionary journey. And so there's no surprise then, if he's one of the counterparts of Paul, that you see his name showing up all over the place at the beginning and ending of letters. You see this in Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. You see it in Philemon as well. But I love Timothy for this reason. He is the young pastor at the church in Ephesus. Uh, if you have read First and Second Timothy, you know it is filled with pastoral wisdom that every single pastor, every single elder should read. There's passages like this. This is my, this is my favorite. He says, he says this, let no one despise you for your youth. Oh, I love that. I love sliding that one in on there, letting people know that you shouldn't despise young people who serve in the, God's church for their youth. Then he adds, but set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity. Elsewhere, he says uh, later on, he says, encourage older men as you would a father. Uh, Timothy, according to church tradition, uh, he started out as a young pastor with big responsibilities uh, in Ephesus. I read this passage over and over in the month of July before starting here. But he has a long tenure, and he, and he lives about, to be about 79 or 80 years old. I really liked him. And so Paul describes him in this way. We're going to look just at a couple things. He says, this is Timothy. He is genuinely concerned about your welfare. This is a guy that is full of compassion 
for the Philippians. This is in contrast to those who seek their own interests. Paul was in Rome, and as he's underneath house arrest, there are people who are, trying to, who are preaching the gospel for their own selfish gain and just doing it to spite Paul. And yet Timothy is there, and he's the example that they should have been. And so he looks not only to his own interest, but the interest of others. And as I looked at this this week, I thought, this is the question that came to my mind. I thought, can we really say that we do the same thing when you and I have problems of our own? Like, I've been challenged in this way as we've had several people who have had serious illnesses, have been in the hospital, have serious things going on in their life. You've, you've heard about it either from an elder praying up here in our prayer chain. Uh, you've seen this in the prayer bulletin. And as they've come up, I have to be honest with you, as if I've been lying the whole time. I have to be really honest with you here to say this. I've been going, is my concern for these people is it only really out of a sense of duty because I'm the pastor and I should be the one to care? Or is it actually really because I have a genuine sense of compassion for these people? It's been a challenge to me in that way. So I check my own heart and I go, why am I calling this person? Why am I visiting this person? Why am I doing these things? Am I doing it as Timothy does, out of compassionate care for others? You wanna know the enemy of compassion? The enemy of compassion is being so busy with your own affairs that you can't see what's going on with your brothers and sisters. There's so many interests that you have going on that you are only looking down and you don't even have time to look up. I think there's a lot of words that can describe Bethesda from what I've seen so far, from what I've gotten to do serving alongside of you. I think some words would be like this. I think we're a welcoming, we strive to be a welcoming community. I think we strive to be biblically centered this book should be preached. If it's not, as said before, use the exit signs. You see this in how we, 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 Lord willing, proclaim doctrine, what we do in our Sunday schools, what we do all throughout the church. It is biblically centered. We care about the truth. Uh, many of us, there's those of us who have had parents and grandparents who have been a part of this church, and so you're connected. That, I think it's another word that we could use to describe Bethesda. We want to be people who are loving, joyful, peaceful, graceful, through the Spirit. You can tell I'm winding up here for something, right? Let me give you another word. Busy. I think that's another word to describe many of us, myself included. I think we're busy people. I think an example in this moment to talk about how you can be busy, but yet simultaneously making time for others. I could honestly think, and I'm not just saying this because my mother-in-law is here. I think this truly is about my, my in-laws. I look at John, and he's a grocer in uh, just two hours west of here in Gettysburg. And he is a grocer of a successful business. He has his own nonprofit. He is an author. And yet, somehow, he always figures out how to make time for others. Here's something I can guarantee I think I can guarantee this. Yes, I can guarantee this. Is that if you went to his grocery store and said, I've got something going on and I need to talk to you, he would make time for you. As I've called him up when I've had my own challenges in ministry and I go, John, I don't know what to do here. Uh, he will make time or he'll say, let me call you back in 10 minutes. And when we talk together, um, I will tell him what's going on and he usually gives me advice back in the form of a story. That's just kind of how our relationship has worked. And it's been through his example, I have learned this lesson, that people are not an interruption to my ministry, they are my ministry. People are not an interruption to your ministry, they are your ministry. And so the question I would want to put to every single one of us is this, 
Are you too busy to be compassionate for the needs of others? And if so, what are perhaps the good things in your life that are not the best things that God has called you to do as you serve in your sphere of influence? There may be good things in your life, friend, right now that you may need to cut out because it's not the best thing. You know what I could live with? I could live with people in our community saying this about Bethesda people. I could live with someone saying, can you believe those people? They believe in the talking snake. They believe in that guy who, who was eaten by the fish. And they actually take this 2,000-year-old dusty book seriously. Can you believe it? How ridiculous. I could live with people saying that. But you know what? Other people might say also this. Or maybe those same, same people who maybe mock some of our beliefs. But you know what? When those Bethesda people come to the grocery store or when those people come to my restaurant or I'm ringing them up um, at the checkout counter, man, they just always take time to say, how are you doing? How are things going? They're some of the kindest people I've ever encountered. They make time to be compassionate. They consider the needs of others as being more important than their own. Christian, can I ask you? Don't just look down, look up and see the needs of your brothers and sisters and those in our community who need you to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Maybe a second thing here. Secondly, Paul says, as a son with a father, he served me in the gospel, describing Timothy. Another word we could use here would be he's a companion in the gospel. Have you ever been on a mission trip? Have you ever been on a short-term mission trip? I've gotten a chance to be on a lot of them. And um, two things, general observations I have made, is that there's something that happens when you go on a mission trip, even if it's just a week or 10 days, something like that, where you are bound together uh, with people in a way that doesn't happen by just showing up to church on a Sunday morning or doing Awana uh, or something like that once a week. When you're just with people for an intense period of time on mission together, it just brings you together. I've seen that, that's the first observation. Uh, and secondly, if you've ever been on a youth uh, mission trip, usually somebody's dating by the time someone co they come back from that trip. That's just, you can ask Anthony, I guarantee he would, he would vouch for me on that. It, you see that closeness that happens when you're on mission together, and then think you are called by the, the Apostle Paul, and for an extended period of time, you're going on mission trips all over the place, you're going to be bound together with that guy. And so we have that language of father and son here. There's that other level that happens when you're doing ministry together. Word of the wise, you're more likely to be lonely in church if you are not willing to get your hands dirty. That's just the way it works. You can't just talk to other people. You have to work alongside of them. And that's what we see right here. Compassionate Timothy companion in ministry. And Paul says, I'm going to send him to you when I can, but there's another guy I want to send to you now, and his name's Epaphroditus. Look at verse 25. Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. 
So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. In comparison to Timothy, we don't have much on Epaphroditus, but what we do have here, how we can reconstruct the situation, looking at comments here in Philippians uh, chapter 2, and then also in the last part of chapter 4, is that Epaphroditus was sent by Philippi, the church, to Paul to give a message to see how he was doing, and then secondly, a gift as well. And so on the way, though, what we can really seem to put together is that on the way he gets sick, And then he says, I'm not quitting, I'm going all the way to Rome. And some of his companions go back to tell the church in Philippi. That's how they knew he was sick. And so Paul says, indeed he was ill, near to death, nearly died for the work of Christ. He risked his life. And so he was willing to risk it all so that he would be able to get to Paul. We're told it has a happy ending, that God had mercy on him, he recovers, and he makes his way to Rome, or he at least recovers while he's in Rome. And at a certain point, Paul says, I'm sending him back to you, the church. And he does that because Epaphroditus really wants to be back with the church, and Paul wants to see them rejoice at seeing him again. And so if that's who he is, here's what Paul says about him. Four things. First, that Epaphroditus is a, notice that word, brother. He is a brother. Again, we get that familial language. He's a brother. Timothy is a son. And you'll notice that if you've been in church for an extended period of time, that people will call each other brother or sister. Now, that's normal for me because that's just always been the kind of culture I've been in. But if you just showed up to church last week and someone's just started calling you brother or sister, that might seem kind of odd. Like, why do we do that? Why do we call people brother or sister? Do we do it because... We can't remember somebody's name, so I go, brother, good to see you. I have to confess, uh, I have been in many prayer encounters where someone comes up to get prayer, and I'm going, dear Lord, I thank you for my, my friend here, and I just... And I go, I cannot remember their name. Lord, I pray for my brother. And now I've told all of you, and I've outed myself in public, so you know what will happen if I say brother or sister. But anyways, why do we use this kind of language, brother and sister? I think the answer is, The same reason those of you who have and are adopting children will ask them to call you mom and dad. Paul says elsewhere in Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but you are sons and daughters, and if you are sons and daughters, you are heirs through God. You want to know three words to summarize that whole thing? J.I. Packer, I mentioned his book, Knowing God, before, uses three words, and he says, it's adoption through propitiation. Or another way you could say it is, you are brought into the family of God, the Jesus's taking on of the judgment that you deserve. Your adoption papers have been signed, friend, through the blood of your older brother who has died on a cross on your behalf. That's, that's who Jesus is. And so when you become a Christian, it is not an individual event. It is a corporate act. You, you get your father. You get your older brother, the son. And you get an entire family of brothers and sisters together with you. 
And so your adoption papers are not just signed by the same person, but all of ours are signed together, and we make up that one family. I, I think it's an incredible blessing. If you're under 30, let's go. Talk with me real quick, okay? Let's chat. If you're under 30 here, here's what I want to say to you. You have spiritual grandmothers and grandfathers, spiritual fathers and, and mothers, and they have so much wisdom for you. And you would be unwise if you did not call them out for coffee and say, can you tell me what it's been like to follow Jesus for 50 years? I mean, what a wealth of information, what a wealth of wisdom there, what a wealth of an example of people who live in this church. I'm talking about the gray-haired people here. You want to have gray people, gray-haired people in your church, otherwise we're just going to be excited and have, be like a ship without a rudder, right? You must have those who are older and wiser. Seek them out. Let me flip it around. For those of you who are not under 30, everybody else. Consider those, consider, consider me for a moment. I am who I am today because people who are 20 and 30 years older than me, when I was, when I was 17 years old, were investing into me. My, my home church pastor who will be listening to this sermon and probably critiquing me and telling me things that I can do better, I knew him when I was 16 years old and I still have an image in my mind of after church on Wednesday nights, he would, he would be exhausted but he would sit down on his couch, I'd go into his office and I would just ask him questions. That's just an example of someone who just took costly time to invest into me. It took a tribe to make me who I am. It's no different for everybody here who is younger. And so if you are older here, see your younger sons and daughters. These are, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ, and we need you. And I say that not just to say it, but I say it seriously. Let me give you a specific way that we can do that. About a month or two ago, I think, I think it's about a, been about a month or two ago, Matt, you came to me and you said, we want to start doing small groups here at Bethesda. And, and I said, great, go for it. And so he, he has started these supper groups. I call them dinner groups because everyone outside of South Dakota says dinner instead of supper, just letting, reminding you of that once again. And so we have these groups and he, and he, and he has got them going. And I want you to know, we are not slowing those down. And so if you haven't gotten a part of that, Look to the springtime. We are going to continue to ramp that up because we believe that the generations should be connected to one another. Brothers and sisters of all generations together pouring into one another so that we would grow in Christ. That's the direction that we want to head towards. Secondly, Paul describes him not only as a brother but as a fellow worker and a fellow soldier. Like Timothy, just like Timothy, serve with me in presenting the gospel. Marita and Chan, they, they describe this, this coming together that we've been talking about and serving together and says, partnership in the gospel involves more than potluck dinners. It involves a common mission of advancing the gospel. These two servants, Timothy and Epaphroditus, were co-workers with Paul. And as a result, they shared a deep relationship that few experience. Let's remember this, deep and abiding community is formed in the church as we serve together, not just as we sit together once a week in a Bible study or in a worship event, as important as those things are. Not just mission trips, not just conferences, not just coming together for one event for an hour a week, but bleeding together. I think of how Justine and I, we spent time just one week ago talking with just a good 
good couple friend, uh, friends, uh, a good couple that we have known for several years and we've served in ministry with together. And they told us about some of the challenges that they're facing. And after that phone call, I can tell you this, I mean this sincerely, I have probably thought about them every single day afterwards. And, and, and my heart just goes out to them because I know the challenges that they're facing. But there's something that just binds you together when you've been, you've been serving, but you've not been, only been serving, but you've been bleeding together, going through challenges together. Partnership in the gospel. Part of me wants to tell you, hey, get involved in Awana, go serve at Plus One, go, go serve in this area or that area, because we need people to serve in these places. Another part of me just wants to tell you, would you go serve in those areas so that you would find friends and have a community that you would have for the rest of your life? That you would see that you can develop close friends that will last a lifetime when you serve together. That's what we have here. Third and fourth, and moving more quickly for these last two. Paul then says he was distressed because you heard that he was ill. What a guy that he was, on the one hand, sick and ill, and yet he was concerned about the needs of others. You see it on display again, someone who considered the needs of others as more important than their own. Give you a specific example of this. This isn't just Epaphroditus, this is in our day as well. Two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, I think, I was in the hospital and I was uh, visiting with uh, Tracy Stahl. Uh, many of you know that she had one surgery that was unexpected, and then she had a second surgery just this last week that was also unexpected. And I've gotten to meet with her and talk with Brian, and um, by the way, I asked permission before I could say this, and she said yes. We were, we were talking together on the phone on Wednesday, and I had the chance to pray for her, but at one point she says to me, hey, I've heard about Gail. I heard that she's in the hospital as well. Can you please give me an update with, with what's going on? There's an urgency in her voice as she talked, and it just struck me, especially because of this passage. It just struck me in this way, that I had one person in the hospital that was considering the needs of another person also in the hospital. We can so easily say, why me do I have to go through this, Lord? Why, do I have to, why am I going through this? I can complain about our situation. But I look at my sister Tracy, I look at Epaphroditus in this passage, and they do not complain about their situation, but instead they consider the needs of others as more important than their own. Are you getting the point? You seeing this? Some things are better caught than they're taught. You see it in the example of others. Epaphroditus nearly died for the work of Christ, lastly. And we're confronted once again that the Christian life leads to sacrificial serving, and it is only possible for us in joy because we know that the end result is that we get to see Jesus. I just look at all of this, friends, and I go, who are we? that we get to see these great examples of living in a sacrificial way, companions, partners in the gospel, all of these things that Paul gives us. This is what's in front of us. The next question really then becomes, what are you and I gonna do with this? I have to ask, have you sat in a sermon, if we ended it here, you would say it would be like this one. Have you sat in a sermon, listened to someone talk, and at the end of the sermon, you know what they wanted you to do, they knew what this message was calling you to do, and they were calling you to live in a certain way. 
But there was part of you that felt that there was a burden that was being put on you that you went, man, look, my week's been terrible. I'm just trying to get in here, sing some songs, listen to this guy yap at me for half an hour and get out of here, feel somewhat encouraged, encouraged so I can get on with my week. And yet you are putting such a burden on me of all these things that I need to do. And man, I can't live up to those standards. I don't know about you, I have sat in that sermon many times and it can feel exhausting where you go, man, I can never live up to this example in the scriptures. I can't live up to that example of the guy talking up front. I think of Jesus. He actually makes it worse. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So man, the bar is just so high and you feel that burden going, I can't ever, I can't ever get to this high standard. I want to tell you a couple things. The first is from Martin Luther. I'll speak to the second thing. The first thing is that in response to this, that we would keep the law gospel distinction in mind. Keep the law and gospel distinction in mind. Some of you knew that before starting at Bethesda, I spent about a month uh, in Germany uh, studying in Wittenberg, the home base of Martin Luther, uh, who was the, probably the most famous Protestant reformer. If you don't know about the Protestant Reformation, um, I love the Oct October 31st for me. I said this kind of tongue-in-cheek. You saw this in the uh, shepherd staff. Never mind Halloween, never mind Harvest Festival. Uh, the nerd says it's all about Reformation Day. And so Reformation Day is a great day because it commemorates the beginning of this, this moment called the Reformation. And so I encourage you to look at the shepherd staff if you want to know more about what that's about. But Luther gets up and says, here's how we should read Scripture. We should keep the law and the gospel distinct and understand that there is that, that move that happens Everywhere in Scripture, all the way from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, that on the one hand, the law, and this is according to one scholar, Robert Cole, puts it this way, that Luther describes the law as the word of God, which sets forth the creator's demands for human performance. But on the other hand, the gospel shows you the grace that your God promises you as he restores you into right relationship with him. Okay, watch this. This is how it works on this passage. The law confronts every single one of us this morning, and it says this, you are not as compassionate as you ought to be. You should be a better partner in the gospel. You should be a more faithful brother or sister. You haven't done a good job of prioritizing the main things as considering others as more important than your own, than yourself, and you should be more sacrificial. The law confronts every single one of us this morning and says that. Because of those things, you and I are sinners. We do not add up to this passage. That's what the law says. But the gospel says, that may be true, but even when you don't add up, even when you feel so burdened, as I know there's a number of us here who feel burdened this morning, and you can't add up to what this passage says we are called to do, the gospel says, Though you may fall down, Christ has never fallen short. And Christ has always been compassionate when you haven't been. And Christ has been the, the most faithful brother or sister that you and I should have been. He is the one who counted others as more important than himself because he died on a Roman cross. He prioritizes the best things. And do you need a better example of sacrificial service than your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And so today, you are not defined by how you fall short. You are not defined by the things that you should have done, but you are defined because you you hold on to the one who has done all the things that you should have done on the cross, and he did them, and you grab hold of them by faith. You may be a sinner, that's true, 
But as Luther says, you can be a sinner and yet at the same time, because you are clothed in Jesus Christ, you are also righteous. So take heart today. He is going to work out these things in you for his good pleasure. And if you let him, here's what I'm confident is going to happen. No matter where you may fall short, if you keep going, that long obedience in the same direction, Richard Sibbs says, he'll get you to a place where sin will be the sourest and Christ will be the sweetest of all things. And then lastly, know that God is not too big for the ordinary. If we would never say that God is so big that there's nothing too big that he can't handle, why would we say that there's anything too small for him to handle either? There's nothing too small in, his life, in our lives that he can't handle or he's interested in. He is interested in all of it. He is interested in travel plans, and he is interested in your life, dear friend. And so my prayer for us is that we would turn to him in all things, and by grace then, get up, and then model the life that he has called us to live in obedience and glorifying. Let's pray. We hope you've enjoyed today's message. Like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy.org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Hero. Have a blessed day.